Cradio.org.au I would like to talk to you at length. I would like to listen to you and know what you think about yourselves and the world. But the time I have been given is so short. You who feel the need for healing, the need for love, the need for a friend, for Christ. Perhaps I love you more. Living the Legacy, an exploration of the charisms of Blessed John Paul II with Sister Bernadette Pike. Welcome to Cradio. My name's Sister Bernadette Pike. I'm a John Paul II sister from Perth. I belong to a new community that was set up by Archbishop Hickey in 2007. The community strives to follow Christ in the footsteps of John Paul II. So basically we have the same spirituality, the same mission and the same charism. At the beatification of John Paul II in Rome in May, I was asked by Bishop Julian Porteus to put together a series of talks on the spirit of John Paul II. So it's my privilege to journey with you over a period of time to explore together what exactly was this gift that was given through John Paul II to the church. You're going to hear me um, make reference to the word charism several times, so I'd like to just clarify what I mean by that to begin with. A charism is from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 7 11. It talks about charisms and gifts of the Holy Spirit, being gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they are given to the church to respond to a particular need in the church at a particular time. And they're not just given to the people who relate to that charism. So the Franciscan charism wasn't just given to people who loved Francis and wanted to follow Francis's way of doing things. It's given to the whole church so that it enriches the faith and the way we live out the faith, each and every single one of us. So we can see lots of charisms alive and active in the church. It's one of the great blessings of the Catholic Church is the richness in the diversity of the different charisms. You can see Franciscans and Dominicans and Benedictines and Jesuits and lots of different ways of um, expressing the faith and experiencing it within the church. The question is, did John Paul II have a new charism? Was there something new that the Holy Spirit was bringing about in the church? And if so, what was it? What we're going to explore over the next few series of talks together is this idea that his charism was, wasn't a particular work, it wasn't like nursing or teaching, or, but rather it was his way of being with God, with other people and with himself, this way of being. And, and I argue it's the secret to why he was the, one of the best communicators of the 20th century. So the idea, idea of this series is to explore what is this way of being? What was, what was it like for John Paul II to be with people? What was the Holy Spirit doing through him? And how can we learn from that? How can the whole church learn from that? Now, it's true to say that there is an element of madness in 
trying to define a charism of such a significant figure so early on in the piece. The Holy Father only passed away in 2005. So it's understandable that anyone that would try to articulate what it was that the Holy Spirit was doing through him, that they would be very brave really or alternatively in my case called by God to do so <laughs> through Bishop Porteous. Um, and a bit, but it is true to say that the Holy Spirit really is at work already in the church trying to help us to understand his charism and to live it out because it, is, it really is needed in the church. My hope is that this series will provoke a lively dialogue in the church where you, you too will share your thoughts and experiences with me and we can learn from one another. Our world is changing so quickly and it makes sense that the Holy Spirit would raise up a witness with a particular gift that speaks to the church in these times. And raise up he did. Karol Wojtyła was having a significant impact on the church in Poland, but the Lord chose to give him a broader audience and made him Pope, the first non-Italian Pope in 455 years. He didn't just lead the church for a few years. He led it for nearly 27 years the third longest reign in history. He influenced the church and the world. He miraculously survived an assassination attempt and persevered through several tragedies and illnesses in his life. And as if this wasn't enough, he was sent to nearly every corner of the world to do his work. In 104 trips during his pontificate, he visited 129 countries over 543 days. Extraordinary. Record crowds flocked to his talks, masses, and even within Rome he gave over 1,100 Wednesday audiences, which are the talks that he gives on Wednesdays to the public. He met with people constantly after celebrating mass in the morning, over meals, in the hallways he walked past them. It would be impossible to calculate the number of people John Paul II touched throughout his papacy, let alone in the 58 years prior to becoming Pope. So what was so important about what Blessed John Paul II said or did that the Holy Spirit needed us all to hear and to respond to? What is it that we're all called to reflect upon and incorporate into our daily lives? What's his legacy that needs to flourish now in the church? Many books and biographies have been written about the activities and teachings of John Paul II. We're not going to turn our attention to these in this series, or not primarily anyway. We want instead to go deeper to the heart of what underpinned all of these fruitful works, which is, as I was saying before, John Paul II's way of being with God and with others. I've spent a lot of time in my formation as John Paul II sister speaking to people who've been touched by Blessed John Paul II. In fact, very often when I meet people and even just simply introduce myself, people have a story that they want to share. For the first year of my formation, I lived in Poland and was blessed to travel and meet people who had known John Paul II very well. And these memories are very precious memories for me. Even now, I still come across so many people who, when they talk about the experience they had of John Paul II, it's so vivid and so strong for them. It really it penetrated them so deeply. People that I speak to now are excited to seem excited to share their story, how they met the Pope, they saw him at an audience, 
even if they just read one of his writings like Theology of the Body or it's just had such a profound impact on people. But one of the first things people usually share about their experience of the Holy Father is his personal and intent focus that he seemed to have on them. Even when that person was part of a huge crowd of people, he said, this is Pope Benedict's quote, which reflects so many other people's comment. Somehow it just felt like he was speaking directly to me, like he knew me and he cared for me. And in his book, A Life with Carol, My 40-Year Friendship with a Man Who Became Pope, Cardinal Jewish explains this attention to the other. His gaze penetrated your soul and made you feel like the sole object of his attention. And when I've heard people try to explain why this encounter with John Paul II was so moving for them, they often say to me, oh, he was just so holy, it must have been the Holy Spirit. But what we want to ask through this program is, what exactly was it that the Holy Spirit was doing through him? And how can we learn from that? We know that when we experience that kind of relationship with someone, that it is very, very special and it's rare nowadays. We can see within ourselves the desire for this. It wells up within us. And we can see lots of people who've left the church too because they didn't experience that that personal connection. So what's given rise in our society nowadays for this or a great need and a desire for this? Why would the Lord inspire this charism? What was the need that it was responding to? We don't have time to go through all of history, but it's important to understand a little background. So in the remainder of this talk, I just want to put this charism in the context in the context of where it arose from. In the time of the Renaissance, there was a predominance of superstitions. So we can call to mind the um, ways they tested whether someone was a witch and the different whether the person was floating and the, the, the different methods that they came to in order to assess whether someone was a witch and therefore needed to be killed. There were lots of practices around this time that were based on superstition and not necessarily on reason. In the 17th century, there was a monumental shift in the way we think. At the time of Newton, Galileo and other figures who were both philosophers and scientists, there was a shift towards um, the scientific method to learning things, to understanding and predicting truth through observation, through empirical evidence. The gift of this movement is undeniable. It completely changed the way the world thought. that There was a complete shift in consciousness and we started focusing on the real and the concrete, on what could be known through the senses and through the scientific method. One of the lines of thinking that grew out of this time was a positivist mentality. Enter René Descartes, scientist and mathematician and Christian. He marks, as John Paul II says in Crossing the Threshold of Hope, the beginning of the development of the exact and natural sciences as well as of the humanistic sciences in their new expression. He's commonly referred to as the father of rationalism, the father of, of modern rationalism. And he's also famous for his saying, Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. 
From this time onwards, no longer did I seek to understand the objective truth about things, which was outside of myself, a, a truth that was greater than the human mind. Now this truth and reality became grounded in what I thought existed and was true. Existence was founded on reason. Consciousness became absolute. So there was a, there were, we were shifting away from a notion of an object of truth that we come to know. Now this is true even though Descartes was Christian. He still created a climate in which, within the modern era, such an estrangement from Christianity was possible. John Paul II says, again in Crossing the Threshold of Hope, it's around page 50 if you want to read up more about this. He says, about 150 years after Descartes, all that was fundamentally Christian in the tradition of European thought had already been pushed aside. And what replaced it was the cult of the goddess of reason. So within this, this new approach, this new way of thinking, man had become the source and doctor of reality and truth. Truth was established if it could be measured and quantified. Knowledge arises only from empirical evidence, that is, from material that can be known to the senses. And in thinking, we're guided by reason, but separated from divine wisdom, objective reason. So we often end up becoming guided by feelings. I just want to use a quick example to illustrate this too. In a talk that I was giving to some students in Australia, we did a little exercise and I asked the, que the students various questions and it started off simply as, is chocolate good or bad? And asked them just to choose a side of the room, yes, no. And why did, why did you make this decision? Why do you think it's good? Well, it tastes good. Okay. So, but can we make moral decisions based on our taste buds? Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, next question. And we proceeded to move through a series of different questions, getting some, to some very difficult moral questions. And at the end of the exercise, the students sat down and I said to them, well, we can see that we sometimes make decisions based on our taste buds, sometimes based on our feelings, sometimes based on the opinions of other people. Are any of these a good guide for moral actions? If you had a politician, for example, who was leading the country and had to decide on what laws constituted the moral fabric of society, what would you want to be guiding them? And so they all said, well, majority opinion, that would be good. And then naturally we highlight some instances in history where, where there's been a tyranny of the majority and something very evil has flowed from this. Oh, okay, so it can't be majority opinion. So slowly the students started to question, well, what is it actually that guides our decisions? And through this talk, I helped them to understand that the only way we can know truth is to refer to the source of truth. If I want to know about how to use a computer, I refer to the manual because the person who constructed the computer is going to know how to operate it. Well, I usually don't refer to the manual. I do a search on Google, but you, you get my gist. Google itself has become a source of truth for so many of us when we try to quickly find answers. And the point is, though, that if we want to come to know something, we have to go to the author of truth. We have to go to God, who is the source of objective truth. But this is, as we were talking about with the students, it was it was kind of a foreign concept. It was, wow, okay, so I'm not even sure that I thought God existed, but it's a completely different way of thinking. 
our generation is so used to just following our feelings or the opinions of other people or some the latest scientific study that it's not even it doesn't even come into our consciousness. Well, what would actually God be saying about this particular situation? And if it isn't some kind of study or some kind of research that we're making reference to or that we have on hand, what concrete evidence or fact do we use? Nowadays, it's our own observations, our own experiences. Now, it's true that experience does play an important role in coming to know things, but the problem arises when instead of seeing God's handwriting in the experience, modern man accepts the experience and the man behind it is constituting truth. So I suggest something to someone and they say to me, for example, well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. So not only were we turning away in this this movement, positivist mentality and philosophy, not only have we did we turn away from metaphysical truths, that is truths that go beyond what we can see, such as things that we know through faith, but we've also turned away from the source of that truth. And in doing so, personal experience is given an unreasonable place in epistemology, in the way that we come to know things. And it's led to subjectivism, relativism, all of which we know is so rampant in Australia. So universal principles about things are trumped by a personal truth. And you can see this really clearly in I'm sure it's in the other abortion debates too, but if you look at the records for the abortion debate in Perth in 1998, you hear so many of the politicians who believed abortion wasn't a good thing, wasn't something they would choose, but not something they felt they could impose on someone else. So they subscribed to this idea that, well, experience is what triumphs. This, there's an emotional story and that has to be, there has to be some element of truth in that and you have to allow people to have that rather than recognising an overarching um, system of moral truths that needs to be guiding society. So I'm going to just make one more point and then we're going to finish this first talk. This is the first part of two in the introduction to this series. And so the point I just want to make before we finish up in this particular talk is that when we turn away from the metaphysical truths about something, and we, also, and we turn away from the source of that truth. So we turn away from God. How do I, how, in a climate like this, how am I going to share the faith with someone? If they haven't experienced Christ and if they've turned away from Christ and they, they, don't have, they didn't learn the principles of the faith so they don't hold any credibility for it, they don't, didn't see it in their experience, the tenets of the faith aren't supported empirically through some prominent journal, and they don't, and to follow them seems to impinge upon one's own personal sense of truth. So it's challenging. It affects the way they want to live. So with all of this, we can understand why evangelization, our culture, is so difficult. Obviously, God and our soul can't be known through the senses. So for the positivists, they have no meaning. And you hear so I hear so many people saying, "Well, you know, if God exists. How come I can't see him? Why doesn't he come out of hiding?" But this presumes that we can know God as an object as we know other things within science, that we can, as John Paul II says in Crossing the Threshold of Hope, that we can overcome the entire distance that separates creation from the creator. So even though Descartes himself was a Catholic, as I said, he created this climate 
which allowed us to move away from God. And naturally, we become more self-sufficient. Individualism. I'm not just the source of reality, the doctor of reality and truth, but also I can bring about that. Um, well, I, I can take care of myself within that as well too. I can actualize myself. I don't need God. It's, he's irrelevant to me. Sounds kind of familiar, huh? So in the next part of our talk, we're going to look at how do these attitudes that developed since the 17th century, have they affected the way that we look at the person, the dignity of the person, how, how we understand ourselves and our reason for existing? So I sign off here with a, a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I give you thanks, Lord Jesus, for this opportunity to talk about the spirit of John Paul II with those that are listening. I pray that you would bear much fruit from this time. I ask you, Lord, to help us to remember those aspects of the talks that you want us to learn from and integrate into our daily lives and help us, most importantly, to live it, to be shining lights of this extraordinary way of being in the church. We give you thanks for the life of John Paul II and we ask him to continue to intercede for us, for all our needs for all those people that have entrusted themselves and their prayer to us. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. You've been listening to Living the Legacy with Sister Bernadette Pike. For more, go to cradio.org.au.